This is Reasonable Doubt with your hosts, Mark Garrigus and Gary Smith. Welcome to a uh, a brand new episode of Reasonable Doubt. I've got Boring Cop, a.k.a. Midas co-founder, Ben Mysalis, and we're joined today by Legal AF podcast <laughs> co-host, Karen Friedman Agnipolo. Hello, Ben's my other co-host, by the way. Quite a quite activity we we have here in between practicing law or uh, or are in between doing podcasts we have, we try to practice law we had karen on because i saw something yesterday i always like having karen on but um i thought of her immediately because i saw something yesterday where the manhattan da's office was telegraphing that trump was in imminent danger of being indicted. And I thought, who better to read the tea leaves than the former chief deputy of the Manhattan DA's office, who no longer works there, but is of counsel to G&G in New York, to tell us what this means. What can you tell us, Karen? Yeah, so I think we are about two weeks away from an indictment of the former president. And Alvin Bragg, who is the district attorney of Manhattan, has clearly signaled through his actions, actions speak louder than words, that this indictment is imminent. It's it's very clear based on the fact that they just gave Trump notice that he has a right to testify in the grand jury. And just to remind everybody, there's different ways, there's two different ways to charge someone with a crime in New York state. You can start with just a, a complaint But in order to actually prosecute them, then that complaint has to be turned into an indictment by the grand jury. You can also just start and go straight to the indictment, which is what Alvin Bragg is doing and what people often do in more complicated cases. So it's clear we know they're going into the grand jury because we know about witnesses who have gone in and they have given Trump notice of the fact that they're in the grand jury and an opportunity to testify if he wants to. And he and and that is signals that they are at the one yard line. They are about to bring an indictment. That's the last one of the last things they would do is give him an opportunity to testify after all the grand jury has heard all the other evidence. So I think it's very interesting. It's interesting in this sense, the generally in California, It's rarely in the state court that you use the grand jury. New York, you do it routinely, correct? Yeah, well, you have to. You can't charge someone with a felony in New York without uh, going to without being indicted by the grand jury. So it it has to go to that phase. So that's what they're going to do to charge him and for him to testify, though. So he has a right to testify if he wants but he would have to waive immunity because when you testify, anyone who testifies in a grand jury in New York state gets immunized full transactional immunity. So you got to be careful who you put in there because you're immunizing them. Right. Right. I was going to, you're so smart. You anticipated exactly what I was saying. What do they do? Because if the prosecution calls you, that's automatic immunity. So exactly. So you have to waive. So you do have a right to testify, but you have to waive. And then what would happen is anything you say could be used at trial against you. So, but so that that's how it works, and that's the stage they're in. There's zero percent chance Trump will avail himself of the opportunity to go into the grand jury. 
Uh, just a few more points to just to point out here, which is because this is fascinating to me in terms of the difference in procedure. We use the grand jury in California as the probable cause proceeding, but we rarely use that, especially in L.A. County. They do what are called preliminary hearings where you get to cross examine the witnesses and everything else. We also when we use the grand jury process generally do not, uh, other than uh, sometimes the, where they will notify the defense of who is a target to give us any exculpatory evidence, I've seen many cases where they just indict first, ask questions later, so to speak, tell you to show up at Department 100 on such and such a date to unseal the indictment. Here, I take it is completely different. Well, you know, they actually, you, you bring up an excellent point. The only time you have an absolute right to testify in the grand jury if you're a defendant, if you have first been charged with a complaint and then you are given notice of the grand jury and then they you indicate if you want to testify. And that's when you have a right. Many times in New York, you don't give defendants that opportunity if you're going straight to the grand jury, because there, although he has a right if he knows about it and he indicates he wants to go in, there's no requirement or duty to notify him. But I'm sure Alvin uh, Bragg, the DA, notified him here and gave him that opportunity just to eliminate that tiny, small legal argument that he could make saying, well, I would have wanted to testify. So it's just a way of eliminating a legal argument that, you know, we know he likes to argue crazy things. So is this, you had said two weeks, uh, based on history, that's the, is this the coup de grace, so to speak, before the indictment, that the last thing you do is you to tie it in a bow is you send, and I assume it's a letter that is sent or a communication in yes. writing to the lawyer. Yes. Exactly. It's exactly right. And you get what you do is you send them a letter that says your client has a right to testify before X grand jury on such and such a date. If we don't hear from you by then, we consider that a waiver. And, you know, they'll take a vote. I mean, so the grand jury still has to vote. Uh, it is a probable cause standard. Um, and so that's what they pr- have to present is a probable cause or reasonable cause to believe that a crime occurred. But no person, no no DA on a case like this would bring a case if it was only probable cause. He would he he is bringing this case because he can he feels he can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think the facts here are fairly straightforward. I, th- I don't think there's any issue whatsoever about proving the facts beyond a reasonable doubt. The issue that's going to be present in this case has more to do with the law, not the facts, because, you know, there's no doubt that money was paid and that it was recorded falsely. I mean, Michael Cohen already has been convicted federally for this crime. So there's no doubt that it happened. And and again, that's a paper trail that will just either it shows it or it doesn't. And it clearly already does. But and and of course, this is the Stormy Daniels hush money payment uh, scheme that they're going in on. But here, what what the issue here is going to be a legal question, because in New York, the crime of falsifying a business record, which is what they're going to say they did here because they recorded this. What is the business record that they're saying is he falsified? So what they're saying was they that this hush money payment uh, that was made by Michael Cohen, he paid one hundred and thirty thousand dollars to. Uh, I think it was to David Pecker. I can't remember exactly what what the trail uh, is. Was I want was it the other guy? The um, it's the other guy. Uh, Pecker paid Karen McDougal, I believe. Right, you're right. 
I'm trying. It to was, I, I know his name. It was Dylan Howard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's who he paid. Um, and so, and so, and then Michael Cohen did this and then Trump paid him back the money. So, so, but they recorded it as a legal expense on their taxes but instead, really what it was, and the theory is going to be... ...enforcement for the 130 that Michael Cohen took off exactly. his credit line. By right. the way, what triggered all this, I won't name the bank because I bank there, but to, I don't want to unduly slam them, especially as the banking world collapses today. But the bank filed a, a suspicious activity report when Michael drew a hundred and whatever, $30,000 off his home equity line because they thought that was strange to buy a, or to fund this check, which went to whoever the other straw person was. And then what you're saying is that Trump reimbursed, but recorded it as a legal expense as opposed to what it actually was. Right. As And, you know, paying hush money, in New York, you know, whatever you want to call it, isn't a crime in and of itself. It's the fact that he concealed it and as a, as a legal benefit, as opposed to, as a legal expense, as opposed to a campaign benefit. And so that's, that's really what the theory here is, is that this was a camp, an illegal or improper donation to Trump's campaign because by silencing Stormy Daniels, it benefited his presidency. And, and so that's really the issue here is whether that is, is legal, you know, is, whether that's illegal in New York or federally. That, that's the issue that, that they're going to have to sort out. But go ahead and I'll explain afterward. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. So it looks to me like one of the terrain that they're going to fight over is, well, first of all, was this something that benefited him for the election? Because the argument by the prosecutor, I assume, is going to be he silenced Stormy so people wouldn't see this in terms of the election and that it would be a scandal, especially after the Access Hollywood Grab Your P uh, tape was released. So he had that um, kind of incentive. I would assume his defense is, no, I didn't want Melania to know, um, as any good married man would uh, would argue. It, is the, Do I have that right? That that's the you do. But I think the timing of it is really, it was it was right before the, the 2016, I think it was weeks before the 2016 election that it was paid. And the other thing he's going to claim is that it was extortion, right? That it never happened, but they're extorting me. Um, so that's exactly right what it is. But I, I think that the theory that I think we can that's anticipate. So are we going to have to, is there going to be a fight over whether they bing, bang, bonged on the, uh, I mean, I hadn't thought of that. Bing, bang, bonging will be uh, one of the uh, areas yeah. that we fight over because yeah. as I paid it as extortion, does that cut off the causation of the election uh, issue? It could. I mean, I think I think that's what his defense is going to be, right? Hasn't he already said it never never happened? And he disparaged her. He disparaged how she looks, and said all the things he says about all these women that you know she's not his type. Although they all look the same to me, but you know, to be that's the one. I've, we've done that before on Reasonable Doubt, where Adam and I have had this discussion, and we've said. Eh, I don't know about <laughs> me. I'm not my type because it seems yeah. to be his type. 
Yeah, he clearly has a type. And so, you know, I think that's going to be an issue here. And and that's going to be one of his many defense. You know, he look, he he does it all. But I think the charges we can expect to see is this falsifying business records as a felony. What makes it a felony in New York is it's false and it has to have an and it's used to conceal a crime. And uh, and the question is, what crime it, what did it conceal here to make it a felony? And I think you're going to see two theories. You're going to see a New York state election uh, campaign finance crime as one theory. You're going to see another as uh, a federal campaign finance because it was a federal election. You'll see both of those theories. And and one thing to keep in mind is if you look at the statute, uh, the New York statute for falsifying business records, it's an intent to commit or conceal a second crime, but it doesn't have to be Donald Trump's crime. It can be somebody else's crime. And there is no doubt Michael Cohen committed a crime in that case because he pled guilty to committing a crime already. He pled guilty in the Southern District. So I think that that is an excellent theory that we can expect to see coming forward with uh, the upcoming indictment that I think could be as recent as next week, but I think more likely is is about two weeks. We're in the two-week window. Is there, because there's some law in this on criminalizing um, very, whatever the object was, is there a theory? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, Gary is Johnny on the spot. There was uh, you even you could you know you could even put Ivanka in there. She looks a lot like it, a lot like them all too. So, is there going to be an argument or a defense that the falsifying to cover up the federal, the state doesn't have jurisdiction? Yes, that's going to be one of the legal arguments, which is exactly why I think you're going to have both theories. Uh, you're going to have you're going to have separate counts. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's also a question that I don't think is going to happen, and I don't think the law this is the law, but I think he's going to argue it because that's what he does. Is if you know, assuming the next president is a Republican, could be him, it could be DeSantis, it could be somebody else. But uh, for argument's sake, let's assume the next president is a Republican. Well, I know if, if they they're going to pardon they any pardon federal crimes, federal. go ahead. That's the object of the very good, look at you, ex-prosecutor, thinking like a defense lawyer. If they pardon him on the federal, which is the target of the state theory, does that absolve him of derivatively? Because for those who don't know, he can't—he cannot pardon himself out of exactly. this case. Exactly. See, Mark, so, it's finally happening. I'm finally making the transition I from prosecutor to defense attorney. It's, it's, it's been slow. Months. It's been slow. You've been trying for a long time, but it's finally. I'm finally starting to make the transition. You know, I tried my first case, and there and you go. You did, and you kicked ass. So, uh, well, but you know, it's happening. I love it. Anyway, well, will you so come here, back, yeah, will you come back to discuss this next week. Yeah. Any, of course. I mean, any time. This is this is such big news because look, the fact that the New York Times is reporting this, I. I I was there for 10 years as an executive. And so I played that game and I worked with the three reporters that wrote this piece. I know exactly how it works. They would not have written this if they weren't 100% sure this is happening. They, they have the best information, the best sources. So these three reporters writing this means 
we're, we're going. One other thing I want to say to you, um, and this is complete speculation, but if I were Alvin Bragg, I might consider not putting Michael Cohen in the grand jury because he obviously, although we think, you know, with his mea culpa, we think he did it for obvious reasons. He's a tricky witness. You know, you, if you defend you, if you were the defense attorney, you would wipe the floor with him, you know, with his conviction for lying to Congress, with his other um, convictions, his 10, his 10, yeah, his you ten, really have become a defense lawyer because his ten his ten thousand stories, right? That he's going to be talking every day. He's talked every day. He's written it. There's going to be some inconsistencies. By the way, all on video. All on video, exactly. He also has a motive, right? He's revenge. Like that's what he wants is revenge on Donald Trump. So, if I were Alvin Bragg, I would put this case in the grand jury without Michael Cohen, and I would signal to the world, I don't even need him. I know he's got problems. My case is so strong. I don't even need him. I'd probably use him at trial. And then I would sum up in the end saying you got this case even without Michael Cohen. But that's the the last observation I would make because because I don't think Michael Cohen's gone in the grand jury yet, because if he had, I think we would have heard about it because he does speak so freely and openly. Um, and so I have a feeling if I were if I were Alvin Bragg, uh, that's one of the things I'd also be considering. Wow. So much. So many truth bombs in so little time. Thank you so much. I'll thanks talk- for having me on. And thanks for teaching me everything that I've, I'm starting to finally learn as a, as a defense attorney. <laughs> uh, don't humor me. But anyway, I love it. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. <laughs> talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Welcome. Uh, very, a very uh, uh, big treat for me is to have uh, you on here today. Uh, introduce yourself. And uh-huh. by the way, tell them, that you took a break. You're trying a case right now, are you not? Where closings were this morning. Yeah, I have. Um, I I feel like I have been in a courtroom pretty much every day going back to Thanksgiving. Uh, I've been in two back-to-back trials with one week off, but before Judge Maida here in D.C. And I finally finished closing arguments today in the second case, and the jury is now deliberating. So and, um, uh, describe the cases. Are these were well. January six cases. Right? Yeah, yeah. I was in. I was in two back-to-back oathkeeper cases. The the oathkeeper, various members of the oathkeeper group, who were identified by the government collectively and then prosecuted. Uh, case was divided into three segments because of the number of defendants. Um, I, I worked real closely with a group of lawyers in the first case, uh, kind of behind the scenes. I was I was uh, right there, um, paddling the paddling the canoe with them. Okay. And then uh, I had a client in the second case, and then I jumped in kind of without a lot of uh, preparation to help with a client in the third case. Um, and we just finished the third case this morning. And uh, it's uh, for those who don't know, it's Friday. Uh, is it has the jury been excused? The yeah, the, uh, yeah. Judge Maida's uh, he only goes to 1230 on Fridays. That's that's a half day he takes off to handle, handle other matters. So since that's his normal schedule, the jurors were all told that they could plan personal things on Friday afternoons, and they've done that. So today they they uh, adjourned their deliberations at 1230. They only had about a half an hour once they got started, and they'll come back Monday. 
Well, that's amazing because I have my theory about Friday afternoon verdicts in in cases. Yeah. <laughs> We've I'm, all seen them. We've yeah, seen them. Seen them. You know, three o'clock is roughly the bewitching hour. Well, see, and you know, you know that that the Friday morning verdict never comes because the the courthouse security guys, the, the bailiffs, tell the jurors we all get free lunch if you stay through lunchtime. Exactly right. It's always tied to the lunch. So uh, two o'clock, you always get two o'clock verdicts are famous. <laughs> Exactly. Does the um, so we'll know on Monday, Tuesday, probably if we're prognosticating, which of the defendants did you uh, try this? Uh, the one you closed on today? Well, since since this is your podcast, and I'm gonna be, I can be a little bit glib. I had the only African American defendant member of a white supremacist organization, according to the government. <laughs> a young man. Okay, but I want to treat him fairly. A young man named Michael Green. Michael Green is a decorated combat engineer. He chased terrorists in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, he then went to work in the security contracting field for all the big companies that we know their names. And he's been doing that for 15 years. He is a security specialist. And he was paid by the Oath Keepers to do the things that he did for them here on January 6th. There's not a shred of evidence that he had any political inclinations similar to the Oath Keepers. But I probably shouldn't say any more than that because I have a jury deliberating. So you got it. I won't I and I won't get you in trouble uh, in front of Judge Mate either. You do have a connection though to another defendant who has been in the news this week. And who would that be? Yeah, I do. Well that isn't that true. Yeah. You know, we I took over the uh the case of Jacob Chansley, the QAnon shaman, although he hates that name. I, I he, he, he is a well, you know, here's the thing. Yes, he does. He is a shamanism practitioner. He has, you know, his spiritual beliefs run towards Eastern mysticism. I think you and I have discussed this maybe just by uh, email. Right. So that is all legitimate. But that's it's 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 earnestly held. He's not some kook. That's just sort of his belief system. But the QAnon thing is just, you know, that got grafted onto him in the media. Um, and and so. Uh, I came in, I wrote a, I published an article criticizing his prior lawyer, Al Watkins, in the immediate aftermath of his plea, because it was just, uh, it's an, it, it pled him guilty to the most serious charge and then waived all of his appeal rights. Like, why, why do you do that? Why do you plead, why do you plead him to the worst possible outcome and then waive all of his chances to argue for some mitigation? Um, but he did. So um, after he was sentenced to 41 months, a third party put me in touch with his mother. And uh, I said, yeah, let's get on the phone with him. Got on the phone with him and his mother. Our first conversation was four hours long. He had so many questions because what is not well known is, is because of these religious practices, the DOC, the District of Columbia Jail, could not accommodate his dietary requests. Well, you know, the federal government is big about, you know, making sure prisoners have, have dietary um, uh, requests that fit their religious practices. Right. Right. So so they shipped him from DOC, from the District of Columbia, over to the Eastern District of Virginia. And for reasons that, you know, we could debate, he was put in administrative segregation. So he's by himself. Now, you have this collection of January 6th defendants detained in D.C., they, they've established a little community. 
you know, they, they're with each other every day. They share information. They talk to their families. They're not cut off from the outside world. Jake was cut off from the outside world. He talked to his mother on the family line, and he knew it was recorded, so they didn't discuss the case. And he talked to Albert Watkins. Those are the only two people in the world he talked to. Those were the only two sources of information because he's by himself. And now I have a question. Does Gary have, I want to show you something, which is what went viral this week. Gary, do you have the video that was just released? Chansley was sentenced to nearly four years in prison, far more time than many violent criminals now receive. What did Jacob Chansley do to receive this punishment? To this day, there is dispute over how Chansley got into the Capitol building. But according to our review of the internal surveillance video, it is very clear what happened once he got inside. Virtually every moment of his time inside the Capitol was caught on tape. The tapes show that Capitol Police never stopped Jacob Chansley. They helped him. They acted as his tour guides. Here's video of Chansley in the Senate chamber. Capitol Police officers take him to multiple entrances and even try to open locked doors for him. We counted at least nine officers who were within touching distance of unarmed Jacob Chansley. Not one of them even tried to slow him down. Chansley understood that Capitol Police were his allies. Video shows him giving thanks for them in a prayer on the floor of the Senate. Watch. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for paying the inspiration needed to these police officers to allow us in this building. You know, so I've got so many questions, and I'm sure I told Gary we got to talk to you. And first of all, was this tape? This was uh, for those who don't know uh, the January the new um, House of Representatives apparently gave. Uh, uh, hours and hours of tape to the Tucker Carlson who played this. And so far, people have been lambasting Tucker Carlson for playing it. Um, uh, My question is more immediate. Did Watkins, who was his lawyer before he pled him, have this, this footage? Okay. Watkins has said publicly, including on Tucker's show two nights ago, that he did not have this footage. He never saw it. I can say that in the discovery materials that I got from Watkins, it's not in there. So I, I can't, I'm not going to okay. second guess Watkins that he didn't send me something that he had. I'm not going to say that. There's no reason to think that. So I'm going to presume I have everything Watkins had and it's not there. I've never seen it before. And as I, you may or may not know, I have 30 January 6th clients, 30 defendants. I've seen hundreds of hours of videotape. I've never seen this. So um, one of the things that so this is clearly, and people who listen religiously to this show, maybe not even religiously, know that I'm always on my soapbox about prosecutors dif- disclosing Brady evidence. In fact, I've named my dog Brady, and my other dog's name is Jiglio. So I've, it's very it's an issue very close to my heart. This failure to disclose and the failure of the defendant your client, Jacob, to know this or to have seen this or the lawyer to inform him of it because the lawyer doesn't know. It strikes me as right smack dab in the middle of what is the Brady that should have been disclosed. Well, absolutely. It, It should have been disclosed because it doesn't necessarily have to be guaranteed to have an impact on the outcome of the case. 
but it's material that was favorable to him that should have been at least used to inform his decision-making. What should I do? And, and Watkins' decision-making. Now, I'll say this. Watkins pled him guilty at a time when the government was still saying they hadn't gotten all the discovery out. The government did not make a representation to the court that all the video discovery was available until December. And Watkins pled him out in August. But, you know, if the government is going to trot out the kind of evidence that they used at sentencing for him to portray him in the way they portrayed him, and they have this other evidence that they don't disclose, then we need to chase down answers to the questions of where was it, who had it, why wasn't it disclosed, and, and you know, and, and what's, what's his remedy now? Well, um, as a practical matter, isn't he, hasn't he served almost all of his time? He is very close to timing out. You understand, like I do, that BOP math is not real math. Right. You know, he got a four, he got a forty-one month sentence. He's done twenty-six, but because of various credits that he has earned against his custody time, he is very close to going to a halfway house. So he can't get that time back, obviously. Right. Um, so it's hard to really, you know, find a meaningful remedy to someone in his position. Um, and and you know. I'm going to spend this weekend looking at the options, and and um, I think by Sunday or Monday I'm going to have something to say. What first thing I have to do is I got to talk to Jake. You know, right. we 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 had talked about post conviction opportunities, and he you know 2255 or something like that, it's and we made just out of the code section. That's a writ of habeas corpus. Right. It's it's a it's it's a you know to assert a violation of your constitutional rights in the manner in which your case was handled. And that's a little different than challenging evidence, as, as you know. Right. Um, hopefully we have an audience of all lawyers who will understand this. Gary um, <laughs> will tell you, we've got a fair share of prosecutors as well. who I, uh, and, many, and many of them don't understand. Exactly. So will you do us a favor? We have, we've run out of time, but you're going to make your decision or at least have some more informed by Sunday or Monday. Maybe we check back in with you on Tuesday. I would be happy to come back anytime you want as things, you know, as things work out right now, I've got a lot of time on my hands next week. I love it. <laughs> so uh, I'd love to chat with you again. The worst time for a trial lawyer waiting for your jury. Right. Sitting around thinking, well, what can I work on now? I got it. I thank you very much for coming on. We'll talk to you on Sunday or Monday. All right, Mark, be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Reasonable Doubt. Subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash reasonable doubt podcast.